Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. I am so excited to introduce you to my good friend and fellow musician, Gordon Kennedy. Gordon is a multi-Grammy award-winning songwriter, record producer, and guitarist and music industry visionary. He comes by honestly, too. His dad is legendary guitarist Jerry Kennedy, who played the signature guitar lick on Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman, as well as Elvis Presley's Good Luck Charm and Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde album. Gordon is no slouch when it comes to music, either. In the 1980s, Gordon was a member of the Christian rock band Whiteheart. Later, he went on to co-write a little song with Wayne Kirkpatrick and Tommy Sims called Change the World. It went on to become an international hit recorded by Eric Clapton and received a Grammy Award for Song of the Year in 1996, spending a record-breaking 81 weeks at the top of the charts. In 2007, Gordon also received a Grammy Award for Best Pop Instrumental Album, co-producing, composing, and performing on Peter Frampton's Fingerprints album. He also produced and co-wrote bluegrass legend Ricky Skaggs' Grammy-nominated album Mosaic in 2010. Gordon has written or co-written songs recorded by Garth Brooks, Stevie Nicks, Faith Hill, and Carrie Underwood. His compositions have been heard in the film soundtracks of Tin Cup, Phenomenon, and many, many more. Gordon is currently on tour playing lead guitar for country superstar Garth Brooks, as well as the groups Seals and Crofts 2, the Beatles tribute band Mystery Trip, and the Tom Petty tribute band The Petty Junkies. I hope you are encouraged by our conversation today. All right, we are here with my good friend, Mr. Gordon Kennedy. Hello, Gordon. How are you? Good morning, Marty. <laughs> good to good see to you. Have, good to have you over. Thank you. Thank you for letting me come to your amazing studio with all these amazing um, plaques and <laughs> re- albums on the walls. And it's incredible to get to just hang out and spend time with you. And you and I have known each other for about five, five years now, roughly. I right. met you through with Brady Seals doing yeah. the Music City Pickers live over events. The little over Brick at the Theater, factory. yeah. yeah. And um, I was running sound for those events, and that's how you and I got to know each other. One of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten was from you, like two months ago when we played at this uh, event together. Yeah. We were just talking about before we started recording the songwriter night thing that we played, and you had asked me if if I was running sound. I think you asked if I was going to run sound for you or something. I was <laughs> like, I don't know if I trust anybody else to run sound for me after you've done it at these other things. And I thought, man, that is the biggest compliment. <laughs> You know, because knowing all the things that you've done over your career, just for you to say that to me was a huge compliment. So I'm grateful for that. And that's just my own personal little thing to throw in there. But Very cool. Well, no, I meant it. 
Yeah, and I appreciate it very mm-hmm. much. So, uh, I want to I want us to talk about. There's lots of things to talk about. This could be easily be a four part episode just because of the depth of your career in your life. I'm uh, old. Well, no, you're not old. <laughs> you're experienced. Yes, and you've done tons and tons of things. But uh, I want to. We can't make a four part episode, unfortunately. So I want to try to con- contain it a little bit and. Just briefly talk about your history of how you grew up in the music business, because you come from music royalty, we'll say. Um, I would I would say that, and but just talk about a little bit of where you came from and how you got into music to begin with. I am a second generation music person, uh, behind actually both my father and mother, who, um, you know, that's how they met was music. My dad had, and I'll try to go through this as quickly as I can, he got his first guitar lesson when he was nine years old. And his dad, who took him to get the lesson, who was a deputy sheriff, and I'm named after him, Gordon Kennedy, Hmm. Shreveport, Caddo Parish, Shreveport, Louisiana, um, took my dad on a Friday to get his first guitar lesson. And my dad goes to see a man named Tillman Franks to get that first lesson. He learns how to play a song called How Far Is Heaven. And Monday is when my grandfather died okay. uh, so he set my dad on the path he'd be on you know from that point just three days before he left this world and by the time my dad was 12 he had a record deal as an artist on rca victor at 12 years old 12 years old chet atkins played on that first session wow. which freaked my dad out going into the studio and seeing <laughs> chet atkins, chet atkins. <laughs> and um anyway he would become sort of a a regular on the Louisiana Hayride, big show in Shreveport. And at some point in his teens, um, hey, to my dad, Jerry, you should do a duet with this girl named Linda Brannon, a singer. She's on Ram Records in Shreveport. And they put them together to do a song uh, together, a duet. They do Who Wears Short Shorts on mm-hmm. the, on the yeah. Louisiana Hayride. And it goes over really well. I think they get asked to do that again at some point. And at some point, he thinks to ask my mom out. And they, you know, they get married at 17, um, have me at 19, moved to Nashville when I was a year old. And dad's, you know, been talked into moving to Nashville to see if the music business is for him. He got to go to Nashville. So he came here. I think he's going to give up after two weeks, you know, gave it the big two weeks, you know, mm-hmm. before saying, nah, we're homesick, let's move back to Shreveport. And they'd made that decision to do that when Shelby Singleton, who had talked him into coming to Nashville in the first place, had just returned from a trip from Chicago where Mercury Records, the home office, was, and said they're going to open an office in Nashville, they want me to run it, and to my dad, Jerry, I want you to be my number two guy. Pay $70 a week, and the, the rent on the house they were in was 75 a month. So that enabled him to stay in Nashville. So we stayed in Nashville. And so I watched my dad as I was growing up. That's all I, that's the environment that I was, you know, immersed in. I was just, that's all I knew. I'd yeah. come in from the the car into the basement in our home and there would be amps and guitars and there was an upright piano up against the wall and there was a jukebox. I tell people my first record player was a Seberg 100 jukebox that played 45s. And... I just just devoured constantly music, the 45s that were on that thing, and then sitting with my family and watching the 
reel-to-reel tape machine for years as a family. Whatever my dad was bringing home, the freshest thing he produced that in the studio that day. So I was hearing Roger Miller sessions and Jerry Lee Lewis, his country catalog. Dad produced that. And then, of course, he was a session player, too. He played on Orbison, Elvis, and Tammy Wynette, Bob Dylan, Ringo Starr, Leroy Van Dyke, and on and on and on and on and on. And then he, like I said, at some point he became, he ran Mercury Records himself at started when he was 24 years old. Wow. He signed Roger to Mercury and produced King of the Road and all of Roger's big records that he did. So this was the just the house that I grew up in, and, and, and I just never wanted to do anything else. You know, I remember playing the jukebox and sitting there and with my eyes closed, even as a six-year-old kid, just think, dreaming about doing this myself, mm-hmm. making, being, you know, I want to make music like my dad. And so that's, that's how I grew up. Uh, at some point in my high school years, and I'd done the, you know, the proverbial harmony guitar for Christmas, you know, that, and yep. my, you know, my dad's a guitar player. So me and Brian got a couple of silver tones, you know, for Christmas one year. And Brian was so young that he didn't even know how to put the guitar back in the case properly. He had the neck in the bottom Body. end of the case yeah. and the trying couldn't figure out why it wouldn't fit. You know, that's, we were young to get guitars, but so those guitars always wound up in the closet with the other toys, you know, but when I turned uh, 15, my dad gave me a Fender Telecaster for Christmas, and that was it for me. No looking back. That's when I knew this is I'm gonna be holding one of these forever. And that's when I got serious about it. I went to high school with a friend named Dan Huff, who is a world class guitar player, and he's producing, you know. So many of the great artists that are uh, in Nashville making records these days. And that was the guy that kind of pushed me through those high school years and, and would even be the guy that would call me to ask me to substitute for him at some point. We're out of college, you know, and he's in a Christian band called Whiteheart. He made two albums with the group, and he calls me in the summer of 84. Would you sub for me for three shows? I want to go to L.A. to do some sessions. I said, okay. And then I quit the band six years later. He right. never came back, uh-huh. and they asked me to stay. Yeah. So I did that for six years. Well, I mean, that's you know how I met my wife, and and it was also how I met Tommy Sims. You know, yeah. so uh, there's all kinds of uh, a series of one step things that lead to other one steps that lead to things, and you know. So now I look back over my life and I see these things that have happened, and can go back and draw to a single step you know, what it was that made all these other things that happened afterwards, which is a kind of a life lesson kind of thing. But anyway, that's how, that's how I came up in music. Um, when I was in Whiteheart, I got my uh, first publishing deal as a writer because I was writing for the band. And that I just needed a place for my song. So my father had done a co-publishing agreement with, at the time it was called Welk Music, that became Polygram Music within a few years. And so my first publishing deal was with them. And I was just writing for the band. And then I would write a few songs for some other contemporary Christian artists. And then I wrote one song that ended up being recorded by the Blues Brothers band, Dan Aykroyd, and Mel McDaniel, a country artist. Mm -hmm. But that was the, the total activity outside of the Christian thing that I was doing for those six years. 
and that would lead me into, you know, trying another publishing deal uh, in 91, writing with Wayne Kirkpatrick, trying to get a record deal with a group then that never happened, but produced songs from those sessions that Garth would use seven years later on the Chris Gaines project. So by then, um, you know, we're, I've met my co-writing, you know, the guy to me that sort of sharpened my skills, and, and hopefully we did that for each other. And that was Wayne? Wayne Kirkpatrick. So a lot of the writing that we were doing in those years wound up being recorded at one time or another, and Tommy Sims being a part of that writing team as well produced the Clapton hit, Change the World. And at that point, you know, we go to the Grammys and get the song of the year. We've got artists that we sit around thinking, how can we get a song to Bonnie Raitt? And now, all of a sudden, Bonnie Raitt's calling us. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's, again, I go back to Dan Huff asking me, will you sub for me for for these three shows, three shows in the summer of 84? If I had said, no, I can't do it or not interested or don't have time, that change the world thing doesn't happen because Tommy and I wound up in the band together in 1987, that Christian rock band, Whiteheart. Right. So there are so many things that I could go back, like I said, and if you take away this one event, then so many things that follow don't happen. So it's, it's worth noting that, you know, along the way, and I've heard Ricky Skaggs address young people saying, you know, I think you should, you know, because most kids coming out of college want to know what their two-year plan should be and their five-year plan. And he said, I really think that, you know, we're supposed to pray about and do our due diligence and until you get a piece about what's the next one step to take. And then when you take the one step, then guess what you do? You do the same thing again. Mm -hmm. So, and I agree with that. You know, I see, I've seen that, you know, uh, come to fruition in my life over and over where it's sometimes it's just one step that is all that matters, you know. Yeah. And don't get too bent out of shape over, you know, needing a long-term plan. Sure. So real quick, let's just, I want to back up just for a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, So the audience knows your dad is Jerry Kennedy. Right. And he played... Guitar, the main guitar lick on Pretty Woman. Everybody knows that. Yeah. Um, he's the electric guitar on Stand By Your Man, Tammy okay. Wynette. He's, he's the Dobro on Harper Valley PTA, all that lead Dobro stuff, Freddie Dobro. Um, he's on Elvis, Good Luck Charm. Yep. And like I mentioned, he was on the Bob Dylan, uh, Blonde on Blonde, double album. Right. And Ringo's Bukus of Blues. Yeah. Um, so people listening to this, episode need to go check out Jerry Kennedy and look up some of those song titles and to be familiar people know his work and may not know who he is so uh, and he is your dad I'll throw in one title that they need to YouTube or or get the record of Charlie Rich life has its little ups and downs to me that's the quintessential Jerry Kennedy guitar work okay on on that song life has its little ups and downs um, by Charlie Rich okay that's cool so fast forwarding a little bit, talking about uh, Dan Huff. And Dan Huff is one of my favorite producers. Yeah. I love love his work and his style of how he does things. And so yeah. you guys went to high school together, correct? Mm-hmm. Is that, yes. that we said? So you have a friendship with him. You've known him most of your life. Yeah. And he can't do something, so he asks you to fill in for him. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're the guy because he didn't come back for yeah, six right. years, right? R- right. <laughs> Roughly. Yeah. And so that's opening 
all of these new doors for you that never would have otherwise. Right. Possibly. I mean, it, it probably would have done something in a different form. You know, I'm sure you would have still gone forward and done incredible we things, would just, but it would be different. would be altered somewhat yeah. you know, on a lot of levels, yeah. You know, I'm, I always talk about relationships with people. Mm-hmm. In this business and, then, and in this town, everything comes back to relationships for the most part, even more so than talent. Um, you have to have talent, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the people you know and the people you trust and those types of things really sort of determine the trajectory of someone's career, possibly because of the trust that you've built with someone else mm-hmm. that is a higher up, is further down the road than you. Um, you know, just even with you and me getting to do things that I've done with you is because we built a relationship a few years ago right. and I didn't walk up to you and say, hey, my name yeah. is John Martin Keith and mm-hmm. I love your work and can you help me do this or that? Yeah. You know, it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with that, but you saw my work ethic. I think, yeah. <laughs> I hope, oh, and what I was up doing. there in the back row of that 115-degree room at the top. There. Yeah, yeah. Um, and saw that I was passionate about what I was doing and that I wanted to serve you guys and make you sound as good as I could get you to sound in that environment um, for the audience. And I was so grateful for that opportunity and just to get to talk to you afterwards and get to know you and your story a little bit and build that friendship with you, then... I think that's helped open up some doors unintentionally, you know, but I'm so grateful for that, mm-hmm. you know, so, uh, so I appreciate that. You're a huge producer here in town. You've played on so many records. And again, I know it comes back to there's step, little stepping stones here and there that have worked your way into that. So you said you wrote songs for the publishing company. Yeah. So it was a polygram at the time that you were writing for them? Uh, it, when I first signed my first deal, it was called Welk Music Group, okay. which was Lawrence Welk. Okay. Oh, wow. And it was a, a West Coast-based publishing company, and uh, they had a Nashville office. But it became, it got bought at some point and became Polygram Music, right. <clears throat> which is now Universal Music okay. Publishing Company. Okay. So a good majority of my catalog is under the Universal umbrella now. But that's, that was my first publishing deal I wrote for them, yeah. So you said that you know, a few years after you had started writing for them in your catalog, all of a sudden Garth uses, for his Chris Gaines project, some of those songs ended up on that project. Well, it was right? it, it, the way it happened was the six years at Polygram. Okay. At some point I decided, I wonder if there's somewhere else I need to be as a writer um, a lot of the songs I was writing during that six-year period of time, I would walk into the tape copy room where Doug Howard was working, cutting my songs into the catalog. I'd write a new song, and I'd bring it to the publishing company. He was responsible for making the copy that they would keep and would use to reference whenever they would go play songs for producers and artists in town. They had it all in the tape copy room. <clears throat> so at, at the fifth year that I'm at my first publishing company company deal, Doug leaves to go to law school. And I find this some of this out after the fact. He had I'd met him at Belmont. He was a senior when I was a freshman, so I remember him. Then he went from there and got a master's at Vanderbilt. And he's in the tape copy room at Polygram. But he leaves to go get a law degree. And, that, and a year later, I decide to leave. So I'm thinking, I just don't, I, I wonder if there's somewhere else I should be. So a year later, finds me getting 
a deal with MCA Music Publishing Company from Los Angeles, a guy named Leeds Levy, signs me, and I get a production budget to go into the studio and make recordings to try to get a deal. And that's me and Wayne Kirkpatrick at this point are going to try to get a record deal. We actually had a label in New York, RCA, flirting with signing us for a year. But they kept saying these things to us. This is in 1991, by the way. Go back to the studio, give us a pop hit. You know, these we can get you a number one alternative hit out of these songs you've done. Which, by the way, on the day one first session for this group, Tommy Sims comes in to play bass and Chris McHugh comes in to play drums. My old Whiteheart buddies, where we were the rhythm section for that band. Here we are working on this new project. And on some downtime, that first day that we're in the studio cutting tracks for four songs, Tommy says, hey, is this an idea that would work for this group and plays us the riff for Change the World? Mm-hmm. So over the course of one year from that day, Wayne would say, give me what you have and let me put it on tape. And then he works on it and then it goes dormant again. And then I ask him, where is that song? You know, and so I get it. And we, it was a year in the making and none of us wrote together. In, that, in, that, the, in the same room together. Right. In oh, that, wow. For that, that one song. Right. But so all this to say is that, you know, we were trying to, to, to get this record deal that never happened. And, you know, there was a lot of, I could tell you all kinds of horror stories about this almost happened and then it didn't happen. And then, you know, at the point where we think this is the song that the guy in New York has been asking for, Change the World, I sent it to him and he finally gives us an answer. We've been waiting for months. Just say, yes, you're going to sign us or pass so we can go somewhere else and play it. He finally, after hearing Change the World, says, I'm just going to pass on you guys. I just don't hear the hit, you know. And so we all just go back to work. You know, you don't tuck your tail and and crawl home and give up. And, you know, I've heard, by the way, recently that Jeff Beck, after the Yardbirds, was going to quit music. Oh, wow. So, but you don't do that. You, you, uh, we just went back to work. You know, what's Wayne producing next? I'll go play guitar for him or whatever. We just go back to work. Let's write some more songs. And so we do this thing where, you know, we walk away thinking we failed. But then Doug Howard, remember the guy in the tape copy room? He's gone away to get a degree law school. You know, now my year at MCA Music went really bad at the end of the year. And I'll spare you all the horrible details. But the guy who, by default, because other people in the company had quit, my deal falls on the desk of a guy who calls me up and threatens to, if I don't give the record label in New York another 90 days to make up their mind after we've given them a year, he's going to ask me to give my advance back. I'll have to cut them. He said, you'll have to cut us a check for your advance, which is the salary. That's what I made that year to to work for MCA Music Publishing Company, and I'd spent the year in the studio trying to record these tracks. So I had to get a lawyer to get out of that deal. and So I, I did get out of the deal. Now I'm just sort of treading water. What's next for me? I don't know what's next. And I get a call from Doug Howard. He's on his way back from Washington, D.C. with a law degree now. What are you doing? Are you writing anywhere? No. Well, I'm coming back to Nashville to run Polygram Music. He went from the tape copy room to D.C. to get a law degree, and now he's been asked by the guy 
Colin Cornish, who's running Polygram Worldwide, Australian guy, come back to Nashville. I need you to run that office. The and publishing office. The publishing company. Yeah. And Doug calls me and says, I want you back over at Polygram because I like what you do. Now, I like what you do. He was the only guy in town that had ever even heard what I was doing because he was in the tape copy room. Right. Those songs never went past that room. For the most part. None of those songs ever got recorded by anybody? No, because, I mean, I wasn't writing. I mean, a a song like Change the World, for example, if that had been one of the songs I had been writing during that time, it would have just stayed on the shelf there because nobody in Nashville needs a song like that. And, you know, so I was sort of a fish out of water. But he said, I like what you do. Come back over. So I signed a deal with him in February of 93, and the first song I turn into him is Change the World. And... Can, you know, can we get this to Clapton, I said, because he had just done Tears in Heaven. and But that's not how it happened. It went on hold for Winona Judd, and she put it on her Revelations album. We had been told it was going to be a single for her. And then when the album finally came out, two and a half years after it had started, the album finally comes out, and they put out all these singles, three singles, and none of them are ours. And I, get, I see Tony Brown down on Music Row, producer, uh, for that album, said Curbs telling her they're not going to single that song, that it's just the radio will never play that song. So once again, we're being told, and in essence, you know, we're walking away going, we failed, we failed again, you know, but you just go back to work. And then the summer of 96, I'm in the studio with Tommy doing a session, and he gives me that, by the way, GK, he said, we're getting another cut on Change the World. I said, really, who? He said, Eric Clapton. That's the one you wanted. And, but that's not how it happened, but it, it happened, you know. Yeah. And it's going to be in a movie, he said. It's going to be the single from the soundtrack and all this stuff, and then bam. So that event caused me and Wayne and Tommy to start getting calls from people about, would you write us a song? Would you do Bonnie Raitt, would you write us a song? She was sitting on the front row at the Grammys, and I passed her on the way up to the podium, you know. Yeah. And... Couldn't dream in a million years that that person would ever seek us out for a song. And we've now, Wayne and I, and Tommy's on some of them, but, and Wayne and I at least are like four out of her last five singles, you know, and still writing, hopefully for her next project again, you know. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of the, the arc of my publishing company life. I mean, I'm, you know, at some point it doesn't make sense to do a publishing deal these days because publishing companies they can't really pay in fact they're embarrassed to offer what they're able to offer these days to a seasoned writer they just because it's the game has changed so much you know if people don't buy music then you see the these draws that publishing companies give writers kind of just diminish mm-hmm. to the point of where they'd rather not offer me a deal than offer the kind of deal they can these days yeah I want to go into publishing as as an artist trying to get a publishing deal. You know, if you go to, a, in, in the 80s, you went to a publishing company and said, I've just joined this band that makes records on a label. I'm going to write for the band, and I need a publishing company. They're not going to turn you down because they're looking at you as a as a writer. They don't even have to pitch your songs. You're bringing them cuts. Right. You know, so... It's a no-brainer for them to to take me on as a writer, bring me in. <clears throat> These days, again, because it's changed so much, and 
you know, if you're looking at the income streams for songwriters and publishers being performance royalties, which that's still there, but the mechanical royalties is pretty much vanished. So now, um, but I would say that you have an advantage if you're an artist because a publishing company sees an artist as being somebody that is going to bring them recorded songs rather than songs they have to go hit the sidewalks to pitch to try to get it recorded. Mm-hmm. If you're an artist that's going to have a deal and going to make records, or if you, or even if you're an indie artist and you've got your whatever that apparatus is that you will use to sell your records. But I mean, even these days, uh, a lot of new artists coming into the business. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when artists went and played live shows to drive people into the stores to buy the records. Right Now they give the records away, hoping people will buy tickets to the show. Well, the publishers and the writers don't get a piece of the show, you know. So, but for a publishing company sitting there, and who do I want to sign as a writer? Well, if you're an artist, I would think that would give you an advantage if you are an artist with potential to do something. If you're a writer coming in that is not interested in being an artist, you're just a writer, then it's going to it's going to fall primarily on let me hear your songs. Mm-hmm. And then it may, depending on who the publisher is, you know, I mean, I had a guy tell me in the last decade, if it's not a song that Jason Aldean can record and have on the radio, I'm not signing anybody. I'm like, well, that I don't do that, you know. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's so many different answers to that question. I, but, I, again, I would just, you know, say if you're an artist, you know, that's going to give you an advantage on some level with a publisher because basically you're going to bring them recorded songs. Right. How did you get in with, um, you play, you play for Garth Brooks now. Yeah. Um, but you've known Garth for, for years, obviously, because mm-hmm. of the, did you know him before the Chris Gaines project? Yes. He had recorded a song of mine called you move me on an album called sevens. Okay. I knew him from Brian, my brother, Brian was actually hiring Garth to sing demos when Garth first came to Nashville. Okay. And so, um, and then at the point where Garth blew up and became, you know, the Garth that we know now was when I was doing that group with Wayne. And Brian, I remember Brian called me one day and said, hey, Garth wanted me to tell you he got a speeding ticket driving through Arkansas listening to White Flag, which was a song that I'd done in this project with Wayne. And I said, okay, I'll put that on my resume, you know. Yeah. But going back to the project I did with Wayne, those alternative songs, as the guy described it, three of those songs of the four that we recorded first wound up on the Chris Gaines record seven years later, seven or eight years later. Um, so that one of those songs that Garth got a speeding ticket while driving, listening to, (laughs) is one of those songs, you know. So back in 1991, when we were just recording that stuff, he had a cassette tape of it that my brother gave him. And then in 1999, we recorded the stuff on the Chris Gaines record. Um, So 
but yeah, Brian knew him uh, first, and you know Brian's still working for him and still writing for him. He's got the last two singles that have been out with Garth. He's uh, written with Garth and okay. Mitch Rossell, and and Brian's out on these tours, uh, the shows that we're doing. But yeah, I mean that's that's you went you talked about how important relationships are to Garth. That's everything. I mean mm-hmm. he's one of the most loyal people I've ever been around. One of the greatest you know, guys I've ever met in my life ever and the best boss. But yeah, that's important to him, loyalty. And, you know, he kind of likes to keep the guys that were around him when it all started as long as they'll stay, you know, and as long as he can keep them, that matters to him. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, you're also a producer, kind of a reluctant a reluctant producer. I would call it reluctant producer. Yeah, but why, I do why would you call it reluctant producer? <laughs> uh, that's sometimes the production thing. You have to sort of perform some things that are a little more. Well, I didn't really necessarily want to do this, you know, with my time or whatever. And I mean, I've been in the, in the studio at some points where you feel like. Um, you're, I don't know, you're sort of babysitting something or somebody or whatever. And um, so I don't, I don't ever want to get into that and have to deal with a lot of things that the producer has to deal with. Some, if, if you're a player on a project, you go home after the track is over, you know, but the producer stays and the engineer stays. So it's, it's just sometimes it's a matter of just more time that, that I want to surrender, you know, for something. But then there's a, an example like the Ricky Skaggs mosaic record where if that had been a project that we started and never left the studio ever working on, I would be the happiest guy in the world. I was, that was to me just the finest, you know, um, one thing I say about being a songwriter is at some point it will inevitably allow you to do everything else you know how to do. So as a result of writing songs, I've been called to come sing these background vocals that were on the demo. Come sing that. I did that on Change the World for Winona, sang on her record. Or in the case of Peter Frampton, you know, I went from writing songs with him to going on stage and playing live and then working on records with him and co-producing with him. Same thing with Ricky Skaggs. You know, I loved Ricky Skaggs' music all my life. I went to the studio on the day that he went to sing a duet part with Reba McIntyre on a record my dad was producing. And I thought, I'm going to watch this guy because I loved his Skaggs and Rice album. And then dreamed for years, man, if I just would get one song recorded by that guy, I would be a happy man. And then he and Bruce Hornsby recorded a song. Well, he called me about that track that he did with Hornsby, he said, could you get your dad's dobro, the Harper Valley PTA guitar, and bring it down to the studio for the solo on that song, uh, Come On Out, it's called. And I thought he wanted to borrow it, so I took it down there and handed it to him. He goes, no, I want you to play it. Hmm. And I'm like, no, I'll caddy for you. I brought it for you to play, and I'm not going to get on that side of the glass from you in the studio. And he goes... No, I want you to play what you did on the demo. So that, you know, getting to go do that with Ricky Skaggs was like, oh, my gosh, you know. But you had you had developed a relationship. Yeah. Right? A friendship with him and a trust again. Well, and this is where it was really forged for the first time. I mean, I was nervous to go into the studio with him. I had so much respect and still do for his gifts. And 
I mean, just unbelievable musician. Yeah. I mean, he was over here oh, yeah. yesterday, and just his. There's something instant about when he picks up anything with strings on it. You know, oh yeah, it's there. It's amazing. So, um, but yeah, it was a relationship, and then that would, of course, cause for a couple of years later. You got any songs for this Ricky's next record? I was asked by a guy that works out at his studio, Lee Groich. And, you know, as a writer, there's only one answer to that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I started putting together some CDs of a uh, CD of a bunch of songs, thinking, you know, what do I have that could be persuaded bluegrass if he decides he likes the song enough? And then just on a lark, I put these first three songs that I sort of had in the back of my mind might be for a, a follow up record to a Dogs of Peace record I did with Jimmy Lee Slos. 20, you know, well, over 20 years ago now. And just, I said, I just kind of want him to know where my heart's at these days. So I put these first three songs on there, sort of like, Dear Ricky, This Is Me, and then songs four through 12 or whatever are songs that I really mean for you to listen to for your project. And he chose the first three songs. Mm -hmm. And I said, how are you going to do these bluegrass? Not going to do them like your demo. I need you to come produce the record with me. So the Mosaic album happened once again, as a result of a relationship that had that had been there, and of course, our musical paths colliding at that point, you know, because he was going to get out of his comfort zone, and I was going to go to work with this giant of a talent, and can I keep up with him, you know, in the studio? So that's the same way I feel when I get to go work with Peter Frampton and and you know all these other people, and and Garth is the same thing, you know, he called me just after Thanksgiving last year and asked me to come do the stadiums with him for the next three years. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know. And so that's kind of where it's at right now. I, You know, people say, what are you – so what are you doing? What do you do? And I say, whatever they let me do is kind of the answer to that question. And, and again, all these single steps lead to these other things. And, in fact, the mosaic record itself um, sort of describes where I, how I think all this stuff plays out. You know, if we're all this little tile – you know, and you are a tile, and I'm a tile, and we're all consumed with what's going on in our little world in this. And then at some point, if you're paying attention, I think we're allowed to see how, you know, my tile is close to a Ricky Skaggs tile. It's juxtaposed to his world. And at some point, we can look at each of our tiles and see this glimpse of a picture that's formed because we know each other. Right. So that album gets made. And, but I'm also convinced that God sees all these tiles at once. And there's this complete right. picture. Sure. And we get just glimpses of that every once in a while. Um, you know, Garth in 1991 gets a speeding ticket to listen to this song. He says, you know, it winds up on this record, uh, in 1999, which is his biggest, failure as a record at 2 million sales. Right. You know what I mean? So anyone else's greatest victory right. is the one quote unquote failure right. for Garth. But <laughs> but you're looking at that and lest we get lost into thinking that's all that it's about, you know. There's a kid in Seattle that comes up to Skaggs after a bluegrass concert not too long after the Mosaic record had come out and wanted to meet Ricky and said to Ricky, can I just say thank you? And Ricky said, what for? He said, that Mosaic record. And Ricky said, oh, you like that record? And the kid goes, yeah, I got saved listening to that record. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, there's one of those things where you, you know, you have to just put all the numbers and all this other stuff aside and, and, and think about the, the, like, again, that mosaic that there's a, a glimpse of the big picture. And it's, it's awesome when you get to witness or get that small glimpse of something to where, you know, ah, I'm supposed to keep going. I'm supposed to keep doing this. It's, there's something else happening here. Those kinds of things matter greatly to me. Um, not whether or not I have a publishing deal at the moment. You know, I've had a publishing deal, and I've got one. I just started with Bobby Reimer and Writer's Den Music. Not because I think a publisher, a publishing company is going to light this big fire and go out and make this big bang in the world for my sake or whatever, but it's, again, it's about relationships, and I know Bobby, and I like having somebody to hear a song when it's new, to give me some feedback and... And so it, it matters on some, it needs to matter on some level, but, and that matters on a level to me that, that warranted, you know, my investigating doing another publishing deal. But I mean, I'd been without a publisher for nine years at the point where I did something with Bobby. So, but over those nine years, I've, you know, worked with and written for Skaggs, Peter Frampton, um, and Bonnie Raitt, you know, people like that, uh, without, ties to a publishing company so um, in those cases you own your own publishing on those songs yes correct? yeah yeah and what's the advantage for for someone who's looking at to get a publishing deal what's the advantage to having a publishing deal as opposed to the advantage of being self-published, self-published? well i mean there's the percentage obviously if you have a publishing company that you write for they're either going to be 50 percent of that entity that is a song there's a writer's share and the publisher's share Mm -hmm. if a publisher uh, signs you and it's not a co-publishing deal they have the 50 percent which is the publisher's share if you're an established writer or for some reason or another have enough leverage that you can negotiate a co-publishing deal then that's negotiable so in the event that i've had a co-publishing deal in the past it would be I would have 50% the writer's share, but on the publisher's side, I would have 50% of that. So now I am three-quarters of the song rather than half right? because I've split the publishing with somebody. And those, like I said, that's all negotiable. Uh, you could have uh, less or more of the publishing side, you know. Mm-hmm. But the advantage to having a publisher sometimes is having some something in place to you know, to monitor what you're doing. First of all, I mean, if you're self-published, then... You need to make sure you know how to do that and to monitor sales, income, all these different things that are happening that the publishing companies are set up to do. They need to be worth their percentage they're taking, in other words. But, you know, obviously if you're able to, if you're an in-demand writer with some big-name acts or whatever that sell records or get a lot of airplay and you can publish your own stuff, then you're just making more money at that point. Of any monies that are being made, right? So if you're a, if you're self-published, and you're trying to get your songs, if you're you're just a writer, let's say, and you're wanting to get your songs out to artists um, that are on the radio, you have to be able to pitch those songs. You have to plug them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, as being a self-published writer, how do you approach an artist that you're wanting to pitch a song to? Like you can't just call up the artist right, <laughs> right? I mean, I, so yeah. how do you do that as well, as a self-published writer even when i wrote for polygram that you know i've seen the, the person walk in off the street with a 
briefcase full of songs, and the answer was, we don't listen to or take any outside material. Or there are record companies that say the same thing. Mm -hmm. We don't listen to outside material or unpublished material, you know. And then so there they have to go to the publisher. And so it's at some point it becomes somewhat of a referral thing, you know. Uh, and here's the reason why I learned years ago that people don't wouldn't just let somebody walk in off the street and leave a sack full of songs is because that person will call back later and say, you stole my song, you know. So if, if, a, if a song came to a, a, an A&R person at a record label with no publisher or just in a manila envelope or whatever, they don't even open it mm. because they, people have you know, done that ruse in the past where they'll send a song to RCA and then later so-and-so on RCA has got a song out and then they'll say, that's my song, you know, you stole my song or whatever. Right. So I know there's a little bit of that to be on guard for, but, um, but yeah, if you're a self-published person, I mean, are you going to be, are you set up to go and make those, you know, uh, pitch meetings? Are you on their radar to the point of where you can call that A and R person and say, "I've got songs for your artist, so and so." And let's can we get together and listen? You know. So do you, let me ask you this: Do yeah. you, being in that position, are you saying that that as the writer and self publisher, that you need to, if, if that's me, I need to reach out to the A and R person for the artist or to their management? Who is a person that you typically would suggest reaching any, out any to? Any and all of those. Any of them. any of whoever it whatever it takes to get that. But again, what a publishing company does for a writer is pay them a draw, hopefully, which is about nil these days, work their catalog, you know, take the songs, look at the tip sheet, you know, which is something that publishing companies... What is a tip sheet for tip somebody sheet listening? Tip sheet is um, they, they should have a weekly one where you look at the tip sheet, there's every record label on there, every artist who's recording, and then maybe a comments section, what they're looking for. Okay. So the publishing company and the song pluggers are constantly looking at the tip sheet and going, well, here this artist says they're looking for this kind of song. What do we have in the catalog that fits that? Okay. And so they'll put together a, a pitch meeting with somebody at the label or and or, or the artist if, they're, if they know them, you know, um, and go play the songs. Um, so as a self-published writer, can you do that? Right. Can you know what every label in town is looking for, for which artist? Mm -hmm. And I used to laugh because all the tip sheets would, under comments would say, needs hit songs. Right. And like, very, oh, okay. Very so, descriptive. <laughs> so, so don't take your garbage songs. Right. Note to self, you know. But... But that's something that's just part of the organization that mm -hmm. a publishing company can offer. Is uh, there a way for a self-published writer to be able to get their hands on a tip sheet or to know how that information? I would think that to, you can get a hold of one somewhere if you know somebody. Once again, it's like, uh, you people. know, if you're just willing to go do, I mean, at some point you're research. almost like a PI or something, yeah. you know, a private investigator, if you can go and get the tip sheet that, this publishing company's getting, you know, 
But yeah, I would think anything's possible. I mean, it's a lot of legwork is what I'm saying that you yeah. would have to do if you're a self-published writer wanting to function fully like the publishing company does. Sure. Let's talk about being a player because you're an amazing guitar player. I've, yeah, oh, I've watched, and I'm a guitar player, and I've been playing the majority of my life. And then I watch you, and I think, I need to go back and take some guitar lessons. <laughs> oh, well, I do too when I watch certain people I tell you. But, and I love watching you. I love watching you play Change the World. Like, mm. I'm always, every time you play it, I'm just like trying to focus on your hands because you're just all over the place, and it's such a cool lick. What would you say it was that got you into being able to play on with big name artists? You know, I mean, obviously, yeah, it comes back to relationships. Is there, but is there a specific point that, the inaugural, you know, opportunity that that you had. Man, well, uh, again, when my dad gave me the electric guitar when I was 15, that was December. In February, I was playing on a talent show at, at my high school with Jerry Reed's daughter was singing, and we had our little group that we put together. So within two months, I went, you know, from getting an electric guitar to playing a gig, you know. And so, uh, and again, just being a voracious listener of music to me it was all about dropping the needle on those vinyl records and learning everything that i could um allman brothers fillmore east live record learning these licks that they were playing and some of their songs felt like instructional <laughs> uh, lessons because they play a lick and they repeat it and then they play another lick and repeat it it's almost like the teacher's sitting there Right. So to me, it was just devouring these, you know, these records. Just learning and, by ear? Oh, yeah. And uh, I, my dad actually hired me, let me, hire, but he hired me to come play the summer after my junior year in high school is when I played on my first album. And I played on two songs for an artist named Johnny Rodriguez. And I went down there with two electric guitars, one of my dad's and the Telecaster he gave me for Christmas. And I played a solo on a song called Run Like a Thief. And then he said, we're gonna do a twin part, both of us together on this other song called Remember Me. And I remember one, and I played his guitar. I was already had that, what other guitars can I play other than my, mm -hmm. you know, this one. And so he played mine and that was my first session, you know. But and I got to tell you, it was a little weird for me at being that age, having wanted to do that for so long. And the minute I actually got to, they opened the door for me to walk in, and there's Chip Young and Ray Eddington and you know Harold Bradley and all these guys I grew up thinking these are the Nashville Cats or my heroes. You know, I want to be like them. The first time I got an opportunity to start being one of them scared me to death. You know. Yeah. Um, but they couldn't have been nicer to me. I mean, they're, they're just the most, the coolest people in the world. And I don't, I think, but I'll say, you know, and then at some point I've joined Whiteheart, played in that. But I'll tell you, for as me as a session player, where all of a sudden I felt like I was in my own skin and this is me in, in most, you know, my most comfortable setting was the first Susan Ashton album that I played oh, on yeah. that Wayne Kirkpatrick I love produced. Susan Ashton. That was, you know, Wayne would put these songs up and I wouldn't have to think, oh, gee, what hat am I going to wear for this song or what? It was me in my most natural state was playing the, the stuff on that album. And so I ended up playing on her four, first four albums. 
and sort of felt like, you know, this is me. So I, I would think that you were asking for like a, a moment of where I sort of things gelled or something. I would say when I first started doing that. Mm-hmm. that but Wayne, that, Wayne brought you in to play on yeah. that album? Yeah, he asked me, he said, because I had done a, some sessions for a, a Kim Hill album that he co-produced with Brown Bannister. So that's the first time I was in the studio with Wayne was on this Kim Hill's second, I think it was her second album. So I had done a gut string solo on a song. And so he calls me, I don't know how long after we'd done that record. And I still don't really know him at this point. He said, do you have a Dobro? And I said, well, I, my dad's fretted Dobro. And he said, well, I need a Dobro part on a song. And can you bring that gut string to do a solo on a song? Same, you know, the same guitar you used on this other record. So I brought those two guitars down there and did those overdubs for him on a day. And it was just me and him in the studio. And then two weeks later, we finished doing all the electric guitars. I, he, he said, Get, yeah, bring electric. And so the next thing I know, it's just me and him in the studio for two weeks and doing all the guitar. You know, I did all the guitars with him, but so I did all the electric stuff for Susan's first album. And that went on for, like I said, you know, three more albums after that. And her third album in particular has got some of my favorite stuff I've played in the studio. Just, again, it just felt like me. Which album was that? It's called Susan Ashton. It's a white album, um, but it's her third album. Yep, that's my favorite one. I think the first song on there is Summer Solstice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love that album. See, that's what I love about this town. (laughs) Because that in high school, um, when I was in high school, that was one of my favorite albums. We played our youth group at our church. We played that before services started what it started yeah. or whatever we're always playing music overhead and it was susan ashton dc talk stephen yeah. curtis chapman uh, newsboys audio adrenaline it was those yeah. groups that were playing o- over the speakers all the time right and i remember when that album came out and i just loved it yeah and it was you and here we are and we're we're buddies now yeah no that that's <laughs> that's that, the beauty of this yeah, town. i love that that album was fantastic that's so cool one of the things just listening to you talk over the past few minutes I'm having this conversation is with all the things that you've done in your career you've been a writer a player a live player a session player a producer a reluctant producer yeah um you know you've been published writer you've been a self-published writer and I know you've done there's other things that you've done I'm sure but you know five or six things that would make up your career Mm -hmm. and Scuba diver. Scuba diver. Yeah, we'll get it. We'll get it into that here in a minute because that relates. Yeah, no kidding. For people listening, it's like that oh actually will gosh. relate to music here in just a moment. But with all those things, and with all the success that you've that you have had, you probably don't think of it that way, maybe. But I look around your studio and I see all these platinum albums on the wall. And I, to, to back me, in those like, days, yeah, they you know they gave those things back out. in those days, yeah. But you've been very successful at multiple things in this industry, which is the whole point of this show, is to, for people to know that you can do this, people that want to get into this industry and want to make a living doing music. It may take five or six things to do it, but you can do it. And it's people that you know, it's relationships that you build, building trust with people, uh, being a great player. You got to know know what you're doing. But one of the interesting things that I'm noticing just having this conversation is even though you've done all this incredible stuff, 
and all the success that you've had, you're still pushing and pursuing new things. You're not sitting back thinking, you know, I've done all this great stuff. I can just kick back and relax and just breeze through the rest of my life and, and that'd be the end of it. And you could, and that would be fine because you've done so much, but you don't, you're always doing more stuff. I mean, you're what, in three, three bands right now, plus out playing with Garth. Is that right? Uh, well, I'm in two bands, do a lot of performing songwriter shows, a lot of charities, yep. and then Garth. And then you're playing for Garth, Garth and you got yeah. a group with Brady Seals called the Petty, Petty Junkies, Junkies yeah. which is a Tom Petty tribute band. Right, and then there's a group called the Mystery Trip, where we do, have done Beatles music, which right. is so much fun. And then, like I said, a lot of performance songwriter things. And So... What is it yeah. that keeps pushing you to go forward after all the things that you've done? And like, I'm just curious. Well, there, what, you know, when you were just way you framed that question and the setup for it, it as, it, as you were saying that, I realized that that the it was never about trying to achieve some goal. Um, to me, it was always about, and you say continuing to move and push. It was never pushing to sell records or pushing sure. to, you know, to do this and that. I think, um, and I'll share with you a phrase that I, I shared with the Belmont students here recently at a convocation. Ricky Skaggs and I just did our fourth year doing convocation for Belmont. And one of those trips to Belmont, I, I thought, what am I going to say to these students today? Because, and then it dawned on me as I'm sitting there looking at them in Massey Auditorium, that I sat where they're sitting, you know. And I said that to them. I said, I've sat where you're all sitting right now. I said, I've been there. You're probably thinking, what am I doing here? What's being accomplished with my being here? What are my goals? I said, do you want to be rich, famous? Um, you want to be a star? I said, that's all well and good. I said, or is this a calling that's on your life? And I said, for me, I realized years ago that this is a calling that is on my life. And I followed that up with saying, have you ever heard the phrase, God doesn't call the equipped, God equips the called? Mm -hmm. I said, because I answered that call years ago. And to me, if somebody said, what was, how did you know, how do you know what was the, I would say, well, for instance, Dan Huff called me and said, can you sub three shows for me so I can go to L.A. to play some sessions, Christian rock band. And he never came back, and I stayed. But I, So now back to the students at Belmont, I said, because I answered this call years ago, and it may, you can draw, you can go back to years before even that, you know, mm -hmm. playing, I mean, I was playing music in my high school, you know, doing sing and share, playing at a church when I was in junior high for Sunday school with the kids, you know, my, my classmates and all that. But I said, because I answered the call years ago, I have seen over the years how God has continued to equip me to keep going. But it's I've seen over the years how I've been equipped to continue to answer the call. I said, be it the way this guitar finds its way into my hands. And I could give you multiple examples of, I can't believe I found this guitar. Or the way this artist has, at some point in my life, just swung this door open and said, can you come here and do this with me, for me, or whatever. You know, these opportunities that have come up. And those things, all of those things, allow me to continue to move forward, push forward, like you said. So 
it was never about I want to sell this many records. I want to play on a number one record. It was never about that. Right. Um, I played on Reba McIntyre's first number one record, but I all I wanted to do was do what my dad was doing when I was from the time I was a kid and to this still going. That's all I wanted to do, and at some point, oh, her her record went number one, you know, and or to write a number one song and all that stuff. To me, it was never about those are the goals I have. And another way to maybe put this into words would be to say I've tried to at the best I can to let priorities shape my goals rather than the other way around. A lot of times, if your goal is to be a star, then your priorities can suffer as far as how are you going to be a husband? How are you going to be a father? How are you going to, you know, they have to get in line behind these priorities. Mm -hmm. Otherwise I'm not interested in that particular goal. If I have to leave my family for weeks and weeks on end and be gone to achieve this goal, I'm not interested in that goal anymore. So there's a, there's a good bit of that that has um, been a part of the formula. If you, if you're looking for that from, from me, yeah, but uh, but to me, it's it's best explained by this is a calling that's been on my life, and yeah. so I just it's almost like the river that's running in front of you. You know, you can even put your toe in there, or you can jump in it. And if you jump in it, you're going to get carried somewhere. Yep. So I I've answered the call or jumped in that at some point in my life, and it carries you somewhere. You know, and that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. So as you talk to the students at Belmont. Mm -hmm. They are looking at the future coming out of that convocation time, yeah. and with eyes wide open, and maybe a deer in the headlights look, because <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay, now now yeah. what? Yeah, you know. And the mu music business has changed so much, especially since the '90s when I I moved here in 2000, and I came in here right as that era was pretty much dying out because the digital age was coming in and Napster and, you know, all of that yeah. type of stuff. What advice would you give to students that are coming out of college or, you know, just early in their career trying to get into the music industry, no matter what facet of the industry they're trying to be in, but just knowing where the industry is nowadays, right, compared to what it was when, yeah. when you were deep in it, you know, in its heyday? Uh, well, I mean, I can piggyback onto a couple things I've already said about that calling. You know, one of the ways I told the Belmont students the same day, it kind of they chuckled, and I did too. But I said one of the ways you know if it's a calling is if you get called a lot. Yeah. You know, if so, if you're getting called a bunch for something, pay attention. You know, to what that might be, and maybe that's something you should investigate whether that's. Uh, like I said, uh, literally uh, calling them. The other thing goes back to something that I mentioned when we first started talking about that one step. You know, the thing that I encourage, uh, and I'm quoting Skaggs when I say this, because I saw him do this at his studio for a group of students. Because, uh, you know, the girl wanted to know what should my five-year plan be or whatever. And he said, you know, I really think that God wants us to study on and Think about what the next one step is. And and so I mentioned that, you know, pray about that. You know, when you get a piece about it, take that one step and then do the same thing again. What's the next one step? And again, when you get to be 
my age, you look back and think this, whatever, and you can pick any one of those. I look at them, I almost see them as dominoes that are standing up. And if you tip one over, they all go, you know, falling in patterns and intricate schemes and things. But it's really, you know, if you reach back there and pull the one domino out and it has the name of a person or a, an event or something that's happened and you remove that and then everything after that one gets altered somehow you know I mean I can go back there and pull out a domino that says Carter Brown on it and Carter Brown was my fifth and sixth grade football coach and if you remove that there's no Tracy who I'm married to mm-hmm. you know no change the world and I could go and give you a whole bunch of things that don't happen probably none of the Peter Frampton stuff because you know if there wasn't change the world you know when somebody went to him and said you need to work with Gordon because and they told him my whole life story and mentioned song of the year change the world Eric Clapton so they twisted his arm a little bit but they were able to put that in the story and he goes oh yeah okay of course they come to me and go would you like to work with Peter Frampton? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's like that's all he had to ask me. Exactly. So, uh, but it's it's those one steps along the way, you know. And I would also encourage young people now to be already thinking this way. You're writing your story right now, your personal story. You're writing it right now. So if you're doing everything kind of half rear-ended, you know, thinking I'll, I'll concentrate or I'll focus later and all that kind of stuff, you're writing your story now. And so be aware of that. But everything matters from whenever you start thinking about it, everything matters, you know. And again, if it's a calling, I think you'll, there'll be some things that will happen that you'll notice to keep you pulling you into and opportunities showing up and, and things that will happen that will that will be assigned to you that, this is where I'm supposed to be. If you find yourself trying to beat down a door, like break it down, maybe you're not supposed to be entering into that place or whatever. But if you see a door crack open, then swing open or whatever, you know, pay attention to wh- what that is because that may be something that you're supposed to be looking you know, into doing. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Let's go back real quick to, we were talking earlier about scuba diving and how that relates to music. So share this story of how scuba diving relates to music. Yeah, I know. It's, it's um, you know, when we're out touring with Garth, and the great thing about working with Garth is that it's not working. It's fun. It's an adventure. Wouldn't call it work ever. But you kind of find yourself in the eye of the storm, so to speak, and the wind starts blowing this way or that way, and you get swept up in it. And at some point, he puts out a single called Dive Bar, which he wrote with Mitch and my brother Brian. And, you know, we're out doing the shows, and I don't get to spend a ton of time with him because he's, like, in demand for every second of his day for something. And sometimes we I feel like we just see him right before the show and on stage, and then where'd Batman go, you know? But... Um, so Dive Bar is the new single, and in addition to the stadium shows, there's going to be a portion of the band that's going to go play Dive Bars. We got on his plane and flew to Chicago to play Joe's Bar in Chicago to promote the single. Jimmy Kimmel crew were there, and we did a segment for Jimmy Kimmel. And then he said to us, there will be seven total Dive Bars. 
The second one was in Bakersfield at Buck Owens Club, Crystal Palace out in Bakersfield, which was cool to go there. And then third one is going to be next Monday night in Green Hall, Texas. I don't know where the four are after that because I don't know that he knows when and where. So I'm just sitting there you know, waiting to, for the Garth signal in the sky. But after we did the Bakersfield thing, this has been like about two and a half weeks ago now, I get an email from Garth are you available to shoot dive bar video in L.A. on September 6th? I said, yes. And then I get an email that night. Ha, ha, ha. I think the second half of my email didn't go out. It's going to be underwater in scuba gear. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you know. And so we all went to his house and jumped in the pool with his scuba. He dives. He had, so we, for the first time in my life, we put the regulator in the tank and the whole thing and jumped in his pool just to, and go, went underwater and went, okay, I can survive underwater and shoot this video. And then the next morning we get an uh, email saying, it just got a little more complicated. They want everybody to get certified. So there was three of us that had to go out of the four guys that are going to go into the pool. The band is going to be shooting underwater. So, you know, I spent a week training, diving, online tests, and doing all that stuff, training to shoot a music video, yeah. which we went and did in L.A. underwater for about five hours. You know, we were down there shooting a video set, band gear, the whole thing, underwater. That's crazy. Yeah. Was that fun? Oh, it was, of course it was. We were shooting with the Hollywood divers, and Garth said it. He goes, these people, he said, anything you've ever seen on TV or in the movies shot underwater, these are the people that do it, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it was amazing. I remember thinking, this can't be cheap either, what we're doing, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, but then I started hearing what the concept of the video was and what they were doing, and it's going to be really, really cool. So I, I'm just curious, how did, how could you hear the music under the water? They like put a speaker underwater. The thing we you find out uh, is that you don't know where it's coming from, but you hear. Okay. You hear. I mean, the guy that was training us would ball up a fist and then smack his hand on top of his fist. Yeah. And I would hear that underwater. Sure. He was yeah. trying to get our attention. It was like, it just takes a second to figure out where it's coming from because that can fool you. But have you run sound underwater yet? I have not done that. You need to get into that, man. You, you got to do that. You got to experience doing add that. Add that to my resume. And I, I never actually, actually eyeballed the speaker either to know. Uh, I don't think I ever went and looked at it to see what it was and what kind of gear they were using. Is it what, hard to play guitar underwater? Well, of course. <laughs> I mean, they. my guitar was a shark with strings on it. I mean, oh. the guitar was made to look like a shark. Okay. So the headstock was the tail end of the shark, and the body of the guitar was a shark, you know, the teeth, the whole uh -huh. thing. And uh, that thing started coming apart after about three hours. It oh, wow. started the finish, started cracking, because the wood was swelling underneath the finish. And... And so there's just, by the end of it, there's these cracks all down the body and up the neck and everywhere on the guitar where there was a finish. It was cracking. And, of course, I let the strings be a little slack so that if I plucked them, they would, you'd see them move. I thought, mm -hmm. I wonder if that would help. But it doesn't matter. I mean, we're, I'm not plugged in down there. I'm just holding a, a shark guitar, you know. <laughs> um, <awesome. laughs> and, and Garth said, uh, got you two Marshall stacks for the video. I said, really? He goes, he goes, you know where we got them? And I went, sound check, flood damage. He goes, yep. Oh, yeah. They got, we got all this gear that had already been underwater in the Nashville flood of 2010. Wow. So that's what's in the video. That's There's crazy. There's a steel guitar, drums, bass, and guitar. 
it's crazy that the that those things still even exist. That, yeah, why they kept that stuff, I don't know, but it may be they kept it. Well, Garth bought it all now. It's going to all be part of some exhibit he's going to do at some point down the road, you know. Wow. All the scuba gear we used, tanks, masks, fins, everything. That's crazy. Yeah. That's awesome. So I'll be, I may be a mannequin at some point. That'd be know. awesome. Yeah, Get a wax yeah. figure of you at least <laughs> yeah. in your yeah. suit. That's right. That'd be, that'd be cool. Adam, whatever her name, Tucson. So, <laughs> Tucson. Well, man, I want to thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. And for taking time out to, to talk with me and our, the audience, sharing your expertise and experience over the years and all the things that you get to do. Uh, real quick, just what's sort of a, a quick list of some of the artists that you've either played uh, on their albums or produced for? Uh-huh. Yeah, um, I have played on records, Reba. Um, gosh, um, a lot of contemporary Christian artists, Susan Ashton, Kim Hill, Twilight Paris. Of course, I was in Whiteheart and the Dogs of Peace. I did that as an artist. Um, played on records Huff produces. Great that he called me so many years after we'd gone to high school together, but I played on stuff he's done like Shadaisy, Faith Hill, Jewel, um, Billy Ray Cyrus, uh, Shane Minor. And I've written songs. I'm leaving people out, but <clears throat> I've written songs for Garth. Eric Clapton, Bonnie Raitt, Peter Frampton, Faith Hill, Martina McBride, George Strait, Trisha Yearwood, uh, Tim McGraw, Nickel Creek, Allison Krauss, Ricky Skaggs, Bruce Hornsby. Um, and I'm, again, I'm leaving some people out. I don't mean to, but... Do you have a favorite song that you've either, either written or played on for someone Well, else? I am so blessed to have heard just some of those names that I just mentioned sure. to you interpret, you know, something that I've written or co-written um, over the years. You know, that mosaic record I did with Ricky Skaggs will always, I mean, that's the kind of record that I would say, you know, put that on my tombstone somewhere. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but I mean, my gosh, to hear Peter Frampton sitting next to me playing something, just playing with him, but then a song that we wrote together or something like that. And what I experienced when I heard Frampton comes alive, trying, trying to reconcile those two different things is, is, uh, I'll never get over that kind of stuff. The same thing with Ricky Skaggs, arguably the best ever in that genre, bluegrass and country, his stuff he did in his country, uh, record making years is unparalleled to me. And then of course, Garth is our Elvis, right? You know, my dad played on Elvis records and, course at the time you know growing up going I want to do what my dad did and then I got old enough to go gosh do I really want to do what my dad did because it's it's pretty big shoes to fill there but and then Garth you know uh Clapton I mean that's been the one that's made the has made the most laps around the world and and provided other opportunities for me to experience so many other things just on the coattails you know of that so there's uh, hearing Alison Krauss sing one of your songs was one of those times where you go, okay, I could not have dreamed ever hearing a song that I've written taken to a level that I couldn't imagine. Just her voice doing that. So there's there's plenty of those kinds of things that have happened that are near and dear to me. Yeah. Um, but it's all part of, you know, just, uh, like you said, being pushed forward yeah. and just, you know, again... What, what do you do? I do whatever they let me do. And yeah. 
and your stamp on the music industry is undeniable. And I'm so grateful for what you've given to music in general. That's nice of you to say you know, that. I mean, Thank that you. really, it's like a huge part of my life, just listening to your work on albums that I've loved, you know, and so I'm grateful for that. And Thanks for the kind words. Yeah, and I'm grateful for you, and I thank you again for coming on and talking with us and sharing today. And I appreciate you and look forward to the new things that you're going to do. And, you know, thank um, you. So, yeah, thank you so much Thanks, for, for being here. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I hope you learned a lot, got some great information and advice from Gordon on how you can make a living in the music industry. Remember, Edenbrook Productions is here to help if you need consultation services over phone call, Skype, or FaceTime. We would love to help you get started making a living doing music.